I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed. In the name of Allah, the gracious and merciful. Peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show of the Voice of Islam with Imam Tawqeet and Imam Farid Ahmed and myself, Farid Ahmed. The time is three minutes past seven. It's uh, Friday, the 11th of November, 2022. Uh, we have uh, very much a packed program this morning. Once again, the breakfast show is an interactive broadcast. It means our listeners have the opportunity to call in if they wish to and share their views and thoughts with us on any of the subjects we may be discussing. Uh, it's in order to get in touch, uh, all you need to do is to pick up the phone, ring 0208-687-7878, or you can use a more modern method of communicating um, now in the hands of Elon Musk, the Twitter, uh, our Twitter handle is uh, Voice of Islam UK. Uh, those familiar with the show would know that uh, we have two main topics that uh, we hone in on. Uh, that is going to be the case uh, today as well. Uh, I'll mention what they are in a few minutes, but before that let me say that we will be looking at the weather with Imam Farid Ahmed and uh, also reviewing some of the news stories that are circulating around in the wider media uh, just to uh, uh, get a flavour of what's going on elsewhere. Uh, we will also be looking at some of the stories that um, are being uh, um, running in the uh, um, the Muslim community as well. Um, now, coming to the uh, two main topics, the first uh, is a topic to do with education, and uh, education or religion in particular. Uh, the first topic is one out of five schools do not teach RE to year 11 students. Now, how serious uh, is a matter like this, I wonder? Uh, will it adversely affect the upbringing of your of our young and uh, the development of their moral compass? Uh, is it important, uh, teaching RE in uh, schools? Uh, so we'll be discussing issues like this um, uh, around the subject uh, with uh, Dr. David Lewin, who is a senior lecturer in philosophy of education at Strathclyde University. Uh, Sarah Lone Crawford will also be joining us. Uh, to lend her expertise uh, so that uh, we can understand the, uh, these issues better. And Sarah is the Chair for Religious Education Council of England and Wales. And finally, on this particular topic, uh, we also spoke to Robert Kahn, the Education's Campaigns Minister, Humanist UK, uh, to glean his take on the issue, and we'll be sharing that clip uh, with our listeners uh, during this part of the program. So we should be discussing between, between 7.30, 8.50, maybe going over a bit further um, down to 8.30, but 7.30 to 8.15 is the uh, allotted time. So do make sure you're tuned in during these times if you're <coughs> interested in that particular topic. Uh, the number, as mentioned before, is 0208-687-7878, and the Twitter handle is Voice of Islam UK. Okay, now coming on to the second main topic uh, that we'll be handling. It's one that looks at life and how uh, to make it last longer. The title of this particular item is How to Live Longer, Five Simple Lifestyle Changes for Longevity. Uh, we'll be addressing this from 8.15 uh, onwards. And to further our understanding on this particular topic, we expect to be speaking to Dr. Uh, not doctor, but Ms. Sonia Morris, who is a registered public uh, health nutritionist. Uh, so clearly there's lots to cover. 
uh, and lots to do. As always, we shall have a review of the Islamic angle to what we discuss from uh, our leading Imam and boss, Imam Fakir Tanvi, and uh, Imam Farid Ahmad, who's now going to be giving us the weather. Over to you, sir. Yeah. So today is going to be largely cloudy with rain in the far northwest. The rain will sink to uh, southwards over Scotland and Northern Ireland later, but it will become lighter and patchier, drier to the south. Tonight, a band of patchy rain over southern Scotland and Northern, I- Northern England will become heavier as it spreads further northwards overnight. Dry elsewhere with variable cloud and clear spells. Mm-hmm. So if we're going out, we need an umbrella, is it? Indeed. Yeah. Yep. All right, yeah, so kind of weather we expect uh, during these months, I suppose, isn't it? Um, uh, as far as uh, the news in the Amdi Muslim community is concerned, we'll be listening uh, to that uh, from Imam Tukir in a few minutes. Um, the um, uh, other news, well, uh, Imam Tukir, we were talking about uh, T20 last time, and we were lamenting the fact that uh, uh, Pakistan will not be probably joining uh, us in the, or not us, but joining in the uh, semi-finals. They had a very slim chance. Depended on, was it the Netherlands beating uh, beating South Africa? Netherlands are the minnows, aren't they? And, uh, and uh, um, South Africa is established uh, cricketing nation. But uh, uh, miracles do happen, and um, we found that uh, Netherlands did indeed beat uh, South Africa, and Pakistan scraped into the uh, semi-final. Not only that, but they beat New Zealand to uh, to reach the final. Abs- absolutely, and um, I, I think it was an amazing uh, display of uh, of talent um, from uh, from Pakistan against New Zealand. Mm. Uh, <coughs> that uh, you know, chasing a score uh, of uh, was it 150 uh, odd? Uh, was it yeah, 150 100 odd? Yeah, yeah, 152. So I mean it was quite remarkable and uh, even England at the same time they yesterday they they won <laughs> by 10 wickets. Yes, um, that was a very uh, emphatic victory, wasn't it? And and with 24 balls to yes. to spare. Uh so Butler seals the victory with with a six. Uh so Butler who had 60 and <coughs> Hales who had 86 they chased down 169 in style. Um, and England in this match they hit ten sixes, so uh, it was just very uh, great, great work by the England, England yeah. side. Um, and, and the final, what they're saying is that its uh, history is sort of repeating itself because yeah. in uh, 1992 you had the finals between England and Pakistan in mm. the World Cup, and uh, again <laughs> it is <laughs> Pakistan versus England. In the T yeah. Twenty uh, yeah. f- uh, final, uh, so that that's that's quite remarkable. Actually, uh, this reminds me of a incident of the promised Messiah, uh, and this is from uh, Malfuzat uh, chapter one, and it is about that uh, within Kadiana at that time there was a cricket match uh, going on, and uh, one of his sons uh, wanted to go attend this match and. Um, in his simplicity, uh, one of his sons actually asked the promised Messiah, uh, peace be upon him, that uh, why why don't you come and and see the match uh, ourselves? And uh, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he replied that uh, you know the the match I am playing, uh, this will last 
uh, until the day of judgment mm. um, and referring to you know the the work uh, he was doing uh, defending Islam uh, throughout his days um, you know how much uh, you know as, as we know from uh, literature that he wrote over a hundred books mm. and a big part of it is uh, is the Rouhani Khazain a lot of these books which has been compiled into 23 volumes and apart from that you have the books called the Malfuzat and Malfuzat are those uh, those lectures that the promised Messiah peace be upon him he gave at different occasions and even that consists of 10 volumes uh, of, of books so a, a great uh, spiritual treasure for all of us uh, to benefit from um, and you know there's something uh, which is quite remarkable uh, that you know just as he mentioned in this in this particular incident really throughout his life mm. he was uh, he gave his time to the service of, of Islam mm. Mm. and when's the final? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the final is uh, is on this Sunday uh-huh. um, so I, I don't exactly know uh, which time it will be I think it's uh, 8am they're saying it's going to rain. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Yes. So, but yeah. they have a reserve day, so it's going to continue on Monday. Okay. So hopefully we, we're going to have a match of some sort. Right. Okay. If not, then obviously trophy will be shared. Uh-huh. Is it always an advantage for the team batting second? Because in both these semifinals, the team is batting second. Uh, well, they say, as far as semifinals is concerned, team batting second has won more uh-huh. than team batting first. But as far as the World Cup is concerned... Teams wanted to bat first and basically win. Oh, okay. So throughout the World Cup, it didn't matter. Semi-finals, different pressure because, I don't know, right. for some reason, batting first mm. just never done, does well. I mean, in India itself is uh, such a good team. Um, yes. And, you know, you wouldn't expect them to crumble like this under yeah, pressure. Exactly. Uh, Surprising. So, you know, even though they were batting, uh, e- even though England was batting second, mm. uh, England's perf- uh, India's performance should have been better here. They, they should have taken those, the bowlers that those, India. Th- those early wickets should have been taken. Uh-huh. Oh, there was a dro- wasn't there a drop ta- catch? Uh, no, but that happened too late. It was uh, like 150. I, I think see. it was 150 runs already on uh-huh. the board when the catch was dropped. Right. Didn't make a difference. Okay. I didn't watch the matches, actually. I just watched the uh, five-minute highlights. <laughs> 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 uh, I'd like I only to watch the Eng- I like to England's innings, that's it. I was trying to emulate uh, <laughs> the example of the Prophet <laughs> Messiah. <laughs> trying, to <laughs> trying to spend my energies else, elsewhere, uh, preparing yeah. the bulletin, which is quite late, unfortunately, now. <laughs> right, um... Uh, I found this story in the Times quite amusing. Uh, it's um, it was about a man who threatened people with a hammer after he'd been asked to leave the, uh, leave a pub in Camberley. And when he uh, had to appear in court, he appeared his behaviour on his hair loss, uh, and he said that uh, becoming bald had made him depressed and made him lonely, and uh, this was the reason his reaction was uh, threatening violence uh, when he was told to leave the club. Uh, but uh, just to uh, allay your fears, uh, Guildford Crown Court uh, did not uh, entertain uh, this uh, particular excuse and sentenced him to prison for 12 months for offences including threatening behaviour. 
So those who are young and have a full head of hair should remember that if you do start to lose it, there's no silver lining to use this as an excuse for wrong group behavior. Uh, you're still going to be punished. So that's a salutary lesson, but it's something that uh, has actually happened. Um, there was, um, as far as politics is concerned, there, there was the big story about um, uh, the resignation of a minister um, because there are certain lines that uh, all consider wrong to cross. Bullying, inconsiderate behavior towards others is condemnable. Uh, and this is what our cabinet minister without portfolio, Gavin Williamson, was accused of doing. Uh, he rejected the allegation that uh, while defense secretary, he had told a civil servant to slit your throat and on another occasion told them to jump out of the window. He was accused of deliberately demeaning and intimidating them. These are civil servants he was uh, accused of demeaning. Uh, an inquiry on these and other allegations had been set up by the party. Um, and though the Prime Minister refused to pass judgment, the inquiry was uh, completed. Uh, so Williamson jumped uh, and uh, resigned. He was the first minister to resign from the new government. And many say that uh, he may not be the last. I suppose treating others with uh, respect is a basic requirement and expectation of a Muslim. I remember His Holiness actually drawing our attention to this very fact in our administration and urging office bearers to be polite, to be respectful to, to all. Um, and uh, um, so this has uh, been enacted and it has uh, uh, engendered a great deal of improvement in the functioning of the system. So it's not something that um, is just a requirement that is, uh, that is that we are made aware of in politics, but in any administration, it has certainly been the case with uh, the Amdi Muslim community. And I don't know whether you noticed, but I certainly didn't notice that after that particular instruction of, uh, of his ownness, that there was a change in uh, uh, how people responded to you when you called up, for instance, and sought uh, s uh, sought information or sought help, then uh, there was uh, a decided improvement in the way that you were dealt with. But you were a senior member anyway, so <laughs> you would have been treated well regardless. But there are people who are <laughs> perhaps not so senior, it's a different matter. Absolutely. Yes? Um, one, one story uh, I did wanted to mention, uh, with regards to the Amdi Muslim community. So uh, just recently, uh, the last Friday, uh, the world head of the Amdi Muslim community he launched the website on the history of the Amdi Muslim community in the UK. Um, so the, the press release says that the Amdi Muslim community is pleased to announce that on the 4th of November, the world head uh, of the Amdi Muslim community, the 5th Caliph, His Holiness, Azam Azam Suramadhi, launched uh, the website history.ahmadiyya.uk so there's a new website about the history of the establishment of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the UK uh, His Holiness launched the website from Masjid Mubarak in Islamabad, Tilford after announcing its launch during his Friday sermon so the launch was followed by a silent prayer led by His Holiness in thanks to God Almighty and in His Holiness stated during his Friday sermon that the new website developed by the Amdi Muslim Community UK includes well-researched articles about the era of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, and during which his message reached widely in the United Kingdom. 
His Holiness said, and I quote, that the website provides a timeline of the blessed era of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, which details how the promised Messiah's message reached the West. And there is also another timeline about the service of the pioneer missionaries to the United Kingdom, which also includes uh, some of the companions of the promised Messiah. And a detailed research, including relevant references, has also been published about the prophecy of the promised Messiah concerning Reverend John Hugh Smith Piggott. Uh, further articles are published on the on the website, which highlight to the younger generation what the true purpose of the forefather was in coming to the western countries so that that was uh, mm. th- that was a press release on uh, the recent website launched by the muslim community uk excellent um cop 27 is underway uh, after denying that the prime minister was going to attend uh, this event uh, the climate summit in egypt uh, Rishi Sunak did make it uh, to Sharm el-Sheikh at the beginning of this week. Uh, the task of the event is stark. The current situation was put into sharp focus by the UN Secretary General, who reminding uh, the conference that the clock was ticking with the planet fast approaching tipping points that can make climate chaos irreversible. He said, uh, and I quote, that we are on a highway to climate hell with a foot on the accelerator. Uh, he said, reiterating that any fossil fuel development is incompatible with keeping global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. We remain committed to net zero and to leading international and domestic action to tackle climate change. The UK is forging ahead of any other, uh, ahead of many other countries on net zero. So that was a statement by uh, the uh, Prime Minister's spokesman. And the uh, statement continued, it said that we will obviously continue to work closely with Egypt as the hosts of COP27 and to make sure that all countries are making progress on the historic commitments they made at the Glasgow Climate Pact. Uh, This year's summit in Egypt is expecting to focus on three main areas, reducing emissions, helping countries prepare for and deal with climate change, and securing technical support for developing countries for these activities. Uh, The event uh, is uh, continuing. It will last till the 18th of November uh, and finish uh, the day after Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is uh, due to set out uh, the UK's tax and spending plans. So a lot happening uh, in the week to come, God willing. Um, anything else? Uh, um, you got anything uh, no, that you want to share? Any, no. No? Okay. Um, well, uh, what else do we have? We've done hair loss and uh, let me just see if there's any other news story. Yes, we've gone too far. Woke um, is a recently introduced term which means being conscious of racial discrimination in society and other forms of oppression and injustice. And Woke has other definitions as well, but this is one uh, that is offered by a particular dictionary. And uh, sometimes it is argued that it is very much misused. Uh, and th- this is certainly the case of software engineer uh, Tayyib Azam, uh, who brought a case against his employers, IBM. Uh, and he brought it for racial discrimination. Why? Well, yeah, he objected to a colleague's use of the word blacklist 
after the murder of George Floyd in the U.S., claiming that it was racist. Uh, the employment tribunal listening to the case did not agree and threw his case out, as you'd expect. Go gone mad. I mean, I don't know what our, our listeners think, but if you have a view, then please do share it uh, with us. If the number is 0208-687-7878, or you can uh, tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The other big story uh, that uh, is emerging uh, regarding nurses, the fact that they have voted for strike action because of uh, poor uh, pay and I suppose conditions as well. Uh, so uh, what has alarmed certain quarters is that in the wake of uh, this, uh, uh, the fact that uh, many nurses have had to resort to food banks, uh, in the wake of this it's been alarming to find that over 400 bureaucrats in the NHS are earning six-figure salaries, salaries of 100,000 or more. Uh, now, in order to defend this, uh, chief executive, uh, or in order to condemn this, uh, chief executive of Civitas, uh, the think tank, uh, um, said that at a time when families are counting the pennies and told they will have to pay more in tax for NHS, it will feel like a slap in the face to hear that there are more than 400 bureaucrats on six-figure salaries at uh, National Health Service headquarters. If we really are uh, being told that the NHS will be protected from cuts to balance the books, then the NHS needs to look long and hard at pay for top bosses. That's the best, that's the least the public will expect. Now, in defense, an NHS spokesman said, the NHS is already one of the most efficient health services in the world. Just two pence in every NHS pound, 2% in other words, is spent on administration compared to treble that in France and more than double in Germany, with the cost of NHS England and NHS improvement executive salaries following, uh, falling by around fifth uh, uh, since 2018. While these uh, data include important clinical roles such as medical, medical and nursing directors, NHS England has plans to reduce the number of posts across the organization by up to 40%. So that uh, 400,000 should be reduced to around, oh, sorry, that 400 figure of uh, bureaucrats receiving salaries of 100,000 should be reduced uh, by about, to around 250, um, if uh, what uh, the NHS spokesman uh, is saying is going to be achieved. So. Uh, alarm, yes, but uh, it should be short-lived. Uh, there'll be few people who are going to be in the NHS, bureaucrats, receiving salaries of 100,000. Anything else? Uh, yes. Okay, yes, yeah. so there will be a two-minute silence uh, today. Yes. Uh, so it says that this year's commemoration to remember the war dead will include the recent restored Big Ben striking 11 times. So the silence is held every year at 11 uh, GMT on the 11th of November to mark the end of World War I in 1918. So Remembrance Day services will be held on Sunday, including one attended by the royal family at the uh, at the uh, centre of the first uh, since the death of the qu- at, of the Queen. 
So during the service, the the prince and the princess of Wales will also attend and King Charles will lay a poppy, uh, including a ribbon of his racing colours of scarlet, purple and gold. So the royal racing colours were also incorporated into the uh, reds of the late Queen, uh, George V and and the sixth and the um, a a ret uh, will also be laid on on behalf of Queen Consort for the first time while she watches from the balcony of the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office building. And Prince William he will also lay a ret previously laid by his father, featuring the white of Prince of Wales' feathers and a new ribbon in Welsh. And the Big Ben will strike. 11 times at 11 GMT on Friday and also on Remembrance Day Sunday to mark the beginning of the two-minute silence. Mm. Um, Now, it's important to remember that uh, when it comes to Remembrance Day, and we have covered this on various times on Voice of Islam as well, that uh, during the First World War and the Second World War, uh, not only um, was it, uh, you know, the British that, War went this war, but also a lot of the Commonwealth countries were also part of it, and uh, this included many, many thousands and thousands of Muslims that were also took part. Um, and this is something which uh, needs to be highlighted yet again. And similarly, there's an article here on review of religion uh, by this from Wasim Ahmed, and he talks about his uh, paternal grandfather Muhammad Abdul Haq. MD, who was from the village of Gujarat in Punjab and his father and uncles joined the Ahmadi Muslim community Jamaat and they pledged their allegiance to the promised Messiah peace be upon him. So he also uh, was part of this and he, and he, and he went to the war so, and, and uh, his son, uh, his great grandson, he writes that my grandfather worked as a meteorologist for the Royal Air Force of the British Armed Forces and thus moved to Peshawar early in his life where uh, where his father was born in 1928 and he says that from 1922 to 1940 the Royal Air Force uh, Peshawar station provided close support to army units uh, which included the Nosherwa uh, Brigade and other field regiments in the northwest frontier and the station meteorological section provided forecasting services for the operation staff and he says that during World War II the RAF Peshawar station supported the uh, reconnaissance ground attack and border uh, bomber escort missions as well as air defense duties against the Imperial Japanese Army Air Service especially in Burma until the Japanese surrendered in uh, February 1946 and uh, he further says that as a meteorologist his grandfather traveled with the RAF towards the Burma front to support the RAF missions against the Imperial Japanese Army Air Service and weather and knowledge of its effects on both fighters and bomb operations formed an important aspect of the success of the RAF um, operations throughout the war and pilots and operations room staff needed to know how to cope with poor weather and perhaps particularly fog which proved a particularly hazardous weather type for returning uh, bomber crew so th- that's just one incident of a 
of a Muslim person who had taken part in this. But there are many stories just like that. Uh, we we do need to highlight as well. Mm. That and 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 we do highlight that on Voice of Islam whenever we do get the opportunity. We cover these segments, and and I think hopefully next week. Uh, we will be not the Friday, maybe not the Friday, but another show will definitely be covering this. Um, on, on the breakfast show uh, uh, in the morning, uh, or maybe on the weekend. I th- I, th- I think uh, mm-hmm. I, maybe the breakfast or even uh, the drive time show. One of oh, the okay. one of them will be covering this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But of course, I mean we we are very closely uh, working. The at least the elders are quite quite closely working with the poppy appeal. Um, all over the country, uh, they've been setting up stores and uh, raising money for the British uh, Royal Region. So that association is now uh, becoming stronger as um, uh, time passes and uh, will continue to in the future, I'm sure. Anyway, Imam uh, Freedom, uh, we have to move on to uh, the uh, uh, two main topics that uh, we're going to be reviewing. Uh, The first one is to do with uh, uh, religious education and teaching religious education in schools. So what is the title of this topic? So yeah, so... What does it say? One out of five schools do not teach RE to year 11 students. So according to a survey, the government statistics show that around one-fifth of secondary schools in England offer no hours of religious education in year 11. In breach of their statutory res- uh, responsibilities, the National Association for the Teaching of RE, NATRE, says that this propagation is about the same as the previous year and accuses the Department for Education of doing nothing to remedy the situation. The National Association for the Teaching of RE has published the statistics after analyzing the DFE school census completed in November 2021. It says schools neglect their legal obligation by combining the subject with PSHE and or citizenship into a single lesson per week, which usually does a disservice to subject content of all those subjects. A a national plan for religious education is urgently needed, it says, to stop people emerging from schools with non-existent or weak knowledge and understanding of religious and non-religious worldviews. Schools in England are legally required to teach RE, but NATRE found there were a number of challenges which meant people were not getting access to education they need. Here are four key findings from the survey. So the first one is that parents pulling kids from school. So nearly a third of the respondents said their parents had withdrawn their children from RE in their school. Of those who had a reason for the withdrawal, 21% of those cited curricular reasons, such as wanting their child to spend more time on a different subject. And 10% said that they, are, they do not want their children to learn, be learning about Islam. And 6% did not want their children to learn about any religion at all. 9% said they wanted to opt out because their family were Jehovah's Witnesses. And 2% because their family were Muslim. Maintained schools saw more reluctant reluctance among parents 
with 42.6% of respondents saying they had experienced parents with withdrawing pupils from religious education in their school compared to 33.5% of the academies without a religious character. Secondly, teachers teach other subjects. So this is the second reason. Three quarters of the respondents said that RE was taught in their school by a teacher who spent most of their time timetable teaching other subjects. In 36% of the cases, more than one in five lessons is taught by teachers who usually teach another subject. Respondents cited a lack of RE specialists as the reason. Even though the government finally reintroduced bursaries for teaching teachers training in 2018 and 19 to teach RE, these bursaries were significantly below the value offered to those teaching training and training to teach the other subjects. And thirdly, the academies aren't as good at meeting their obligations. So 50% of the respondents from academies said their school did not meet their legal or contractual requirements to teach RE compared to 40.3% of those working in maintained schools. The situation in the academies is similar when compared to compared with 2015-16 data which all which was also at 50% but maintained schools had seen a rise in 34 by 34%. Now fourthly the fourth reason is that most year 11 and year 10 students aren't taught any REs. So 64% of teachers reported that year 11 pupils at their school did not receive any RE training uh, teaching. The figure was 59% for year 10 and RE is an optional subject at key stage 4. Ben Wood, NATRE chair, said RE is a vital part of curriculum giving pupils a chance to learn about the people in the world around them and providing them with the opportunity to discuss and debate important questions. To deny pupil that chance means pupils are missing on a crucial part of their learning, something every pupil in every school is entitled to receive. Religious education must be taught in all state-funded schools in England. However, RE has an unusual position on the curriculum being the part of basic curriculum but not national curriculum. And one of the two subjects were where parents have a legal right to withdraw their children from class. The wider con in the wider context the wider context for RE, the UK has a rich heritage of culture and diversity. This is continuing today in an era of globalization and increasingly interdependent world. Religion and belief for many people forms a crucial part of their cultural and identity. Religion and beliefs have become more visible in the public life locally, nationally and internationally. The impact of religion on a society and public life is constantly brought to, pub to public attention through extensive media coverage. The rapid pace of development in the scientific and medical technologies environmental debate continue to present new issues which rise which raise religious moral and social questions the importance of re the religion and belief beliefs inform 
our values and are reflected in what we say and how we behave. RE is an important subject developing an, an individual's knowledge and understanding of the religions and beliefs which form a part of contemporary society. Religious education provokes challenging questions about the ultimate meaning of purpose of life, beliefs of God and self and the nature of reality. Issues of right and wrong and what it means to be a human. It can develop people's knowledge and understanding of Christianity and other principal religions, other, relig other religious traditions and worldwide views that offer answers to questions such as these. Ari also contributes to people, pers people's personal development and well-being and the community cohesion by promoting mutual respect and tolerance in a diverse society. RE can also make important contributions to other parts of school curriculum such as citizenship, personal, social, health and economical, economic and education, PSHE education, the humanities, education for sustainable development and others. It offers opportunities for personal reflection and spiritual development deepening the understanding of significance of religion in their lives in the life of others individually communally and cross-culturally personal development and well-being the re plays an important role in preparing pupils for adult life employment and long life learning it helps children and young people become successful learners confident individuals and responsible citizens. It gives them the knowledge, skills, and understanding to discern the value, truth, value, the truth, and goodness, strengthening their capacity and for making moral judgments, and for evaluating different types of commitment to make positive and healthy choices. Community cohesion. So, RE makes an important contribution to a school's duty to promote community cohesion, it provides a key context to develop young people's understanding and appreciation of diversity. Mm. Brother Freed, we, we do have uh, our expert okay. on the line. Um, is uh, Dr. David uh, Lewin, uh, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy and, uh, and Education at Strathclyde University. Thank you very much for coming on to speak to us, uh, Dr. Lewin. Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks very much for having me. There's a Bit of an echo on the line, oh. but hopefully you can hear me okay. Uh, yes, we can hear you okay. Um, uh, let's uh, let me uh, start by asking: Do you think it's important to have religious education in schools? And what would you say to the uh, secularists uh, in France, where teachers who wish to wear a religious symbol are banned from doing so? Okay. Well, the first question of, of the importance of RE in school. Um, I certainly do think that religious education is really important, um, but what is meant by religious education is often not settled. There's lots of different conceptions of what RE is, and, and as your introduction to this um, theme made clear, there are lots of different purposes that RE is supposed to uh, support, um, and that's one of the issues, I think, for RE, what it exactly is supposed to be doing 
Um, and uh, is, is it supposed to be supporting or promoting any particular faith, religious tradition, or, or is it supposed to be introducing religious literacy to young people? So from my point of view, um, religious literacy is extremely important. Um, I wouldn't want to reduce RE as a subject to that alone. Um, I think personal development, spiritual development, um, those sorts of issues are an important thing to, thing to consider alongside uh, religious literacy. So in general, it's a really, really important subject. Um, and I think uh, it also ought to take more account of the academic study of religion. Um, and it should therefore, you know, become more of a, 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 a fully integrated academic subject rather than a rather exceptional subject out on its own as it currently is. It's, it's regarded as a slightly exceptional subject because of its unique position on the curriculum. Um, now, your other question was about um, secularism mm. in France. Mm -hmm. So what would I say to secularists in France um, where they're not allowed or they're banned from wearing religi religious symbols? I mean, that's a very long, long uh, story and quite a complicated one. Um, so I'm very interested in, in this issue of secularism. But the first thing I would want to say is that there are lots of different types of secularism. Um, and one of the things I'd highlight is in the recent Ofsted review of religious education um, in the UK, um, our, our, our country, the UK, was referred to as multi-religious and multi-secular. By that, I think the author, Richard Quay, meant that there are lots of different types of being religious and non-religious, and that therefore uh, that's really important to consider when teaching RE. Now, when it comes to secularism as a political entity in France or in the US or in Turkey or in other parts of the world, what it means and what it looks like is very, very different in those different places. In principle... I think the idea that uh, we protect the interests of the state as well as protecting the interests of minority religious groups um, through some kind of separation of certain elements of, of, uh, of religion from public life makes some sense. But this must be done very, very carefully. Um, and in France, when the, uh, when the laws around um, the public... Um, uh, allowing um, public figures to wear uh, religious symbols was banned in 2004. Although this theoretically applies to everybody, um, it seems to have been a reaction to a particular religious kind of expression, in, in other words, Islamic, um, and it seems therefore to have been prejudiced or built on a kind of prejudice, and that's my worry about it. Of course, laws have to be interpreted. So the French secularist laws are interpreted and enacted in a particular way. And I think the way it's enacted is perhaps unhelpful. So that very long answer is to say that I think the way in which French secularism is enacted goes too far. Mm. I think it's a mistake to ban people from wearing religious symbols. For, for starters, I think it's a big question how you define what is and what is not a religious symbol. That's already a very difficult philosophical question, um, and I'm not sure there's a very clear answer to that in the first place. So how you decide what's, what you're going to ban and what you're not going to ban becomes very, very complicated, especially when everyone now wears a, a face a mask for a different reason.
Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the the line that is adopted in the UK is something that you think is more sensible uh, when we are uh, considering secularism rather than the more uh, draconian line. What some would describe that uh, is adopted in France. Would that be? That's right. Appear, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I have uh, two colleagues with me. They will also be asking uh, a couple of questions. Is that okay? Great. Uh, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, I, I wanted to ask you um, with regards to uh, as, as a project lead for the After Religious Education project, could you tell us uh, a bit about that? Certainly, yeah. So I'm leading a project with a group of, well, teachers uh, and academics, some academics from uh, religion and education field and some academics from education studies. Um, And the project is basically um, trying to understand um, how we can reimagine religious education to take account of some of the changes in the academic study of religion. Um, In particular, how uh, religion as a subject is framed by a particular tradition of religious studies which um, which arises out of a 19th century scholarly program which presents these days anyway presents six major world religions um, as what's called a world religions paradigm now the world religions paradigm is a way of presenting religions to kids schools um, which has a history and I think what we want to do is ask questions about it where does it come from whose interests are behind it could it be different how would it be different what about all those people who are not religious how do we include those and their insights and their points of view into an interesting and engaging RE curriculum that's inclusive for all so how do we make RE inclusive for all um, and take account of the recent developments in religious studies Thank you. And and how can we uh, be inclusive of all religion and non-religious worldwide while also being selective? Uh, okay, that is uh, the million dollar question really. How can we ensure that everybody's view, uh, point of view is represented in uh, RE um, while at the same time having to recognize that we can't do everything? And that's one of the great um, questions for teachers. So it's a great curriculum question. Um, What are the principles by which we select, simplify, and represent the world to children? Um, And we've got a theory of pedagogical reduction, which is an idea that we we self-consciously select, simplify, represent things to children in a way that is considered rather than simply um, drawing on prejudice to be reductive. So what I want to make a distinction here is between being pedagogically reductive or reductionist, that is to say, having a very deliberate strategy for selecting and simplifying the world versus reductionism, which is a negative idea whereby we're simply using prejudice and bias to to drive our curriculum. Okay, so how do we do that? Um, Well, in my view, we can't do everything. So we look for examples, um, for stories, for narratives, for for occasions to open things up for children. Now those stories, narratives and and, and examples will be things that children themselves 
um, would find engaging. And I think the important thing is that this builds on teachers' relationship with children, expertise in the classroom. So whatever I have to say as an academic of, of RE, I can only say so much because it builds on the considered expertise of teachers. And I think sometimes that's underestimated um, uh, in these sorts of conversations. So my own, my own concern would be how do we illustrate through example the di diversity and complexity of religion? How do we, through example, show the differences between institutional religious ideas and personal religious experiences? Um, how do we frame religion? So I mentioned earlier the world religions paradigm. Um, how, how do we, what, what, what is it that's behind our presentation to children and how do we show that and share that with children? Um, so this might mean that we select very, very narrow, um, very particular stories, but that we understand why we're choosing those stories and open them up um, and allow those stories to reflect a much bigger principle um, that, that exposes something much larger. Um, I, I mean, that's roughly speaking. It, it is the million-dollar question. How do we represent everything, the, the complexity of the religious landscape for children? And there's no straightforward answer. So that, those are some thoughts on that. And and also, um, looking at the article we're lo uh, here in, in, in front of us, it says that nearly one-third, 31.7% of uh, correspondents, they said that parents had withdrawn their children mm -hmm. from RE in their school and one of the reasons they've given for that is that parents just one of the reasons for that is parents just said that they want the child to spend more time on a different subject so mm. I, I, I wanted to ask like what what can we introduce uh, to get parents and children more interested toward towards religious education yeah that's a great question um I think it's certainly true that RE's confused purpose leads uh, people to regard it as irrelevant. Um, and one of the answers to this that is quite common is that we establish RE as an academic subject alongside other academic subjects, rather than see um, RE as a rather peculiar um, subject that sits sort of outside the mainstream academic curriculum as it's sometimes perceived anyway um, another way would, would be to argue that, that we establish academic principles of religious studies more directly through the subject and you know there are lots of disciplines that underpin religious studies not least you know philosophy theology uh, religious studies itself anthropology sociology so there are lots of methods lots of academic um, depth, I would say, to this subject. Of, obviously, there's also the great argument of religious literacy, that, that in order to live well in the world, um, children need to encounter diversity, others, different people, different cultures, different religions, different uh, worldviews. Um, and I think one of the other principal ideas uh, here, and this is reflected in the Commission on Religious Education report from 2018, is that our subject should take account significantly of non-religious worldviews along with religious uh, worldviews. Um, I'm not sure about the terminology, whether worldview is the best term here, but, but I think the principle is right that we somehow... Um, 
consider the fact that many children in classrooms don't really get religion. Many do, but many don't. And what do we do? What are we doing for them in RE? Great. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. David Lewin. Just one last question from my colleague. Oh, yeah. Lastly, whose interests govern the formation of pedagogical objects? Oh, right. Um, That is a a, a very good question. Whose interests govern the formation of pedagogical objects? So what what what's behind that question is this idea that when we present when we simplify things for children we we um create if you like or we form curriculum or pedagogical objects and in general uh, our religious traditions our culture our tradition has had a huge influence on the stories we tell our children naturally and uh you know for, for generations, uh, the Christian religion had a big influence on how religious instruction used to look. Things look different now. Um, nation states um, in the UK, uh, the, the, um, we want to think about how to make children um, more, uh, how do we say this, patriotic perhaps, more un- understanding of, of the nation. Um, so one of the ways um, that one of the interests that govern pedagogical um, approaches is is the nation state itself and bringing people into the nation. There are also, of course, and I mentioned this a moment ago, academic and professional institutions that support and guide the formation of curricula for religion. Um, so university courses um, and other kinds of um, influence. And we shouldn't also ignore the possibility that there are corporate interests that sometimes uh, direct um, uh, the way curriculums are formed. I don't think that's such a problem in religious education as in some places, but obviously there are going to be stakeholders within religious education. That is to say, all those religious groups who feel that they want to be represented on the curriculum, uh, and how do we ensure that they do feel represented and included while acknowledging that not everybody can sort of be discussed explicitly. So how do we balance that out? Very, very difficult. But um, the principle, in my view, the principle um, uh, influence on curriculum formation ought to be educational. And that means it ought to come from educators. In other words, teachers, curriculum developers should be those people that that really have the main say in how uh, curriculum is formed and developed. Um, and, and keeping in mind always the educational intentions of what we're trying to achieve. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lewin. A very comprehensive uh, analysis on this particular topic. Thank you very much for coming on uh, to join us uh, on The Breakfast Show. Sure. Yeah, ha- have a great day. Thank you very and much you, for inviting and you. me. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Right, so that was Dr. Uh, David Lewin, a senior uh, lecturer in philosophy of uh, education at Strathclyde University. We will be speaking to uh, Sarah Lane Crawford as well later on uh, after the news. Uh, Sarah is the chair for Religious Education Council of England and Wales. And we'll be listening also to the views of Robert Can, who we spoke to earlier uh, and uh, Robert Cann is the Education Campaigns Minister of Humanists uh, uh, UK. Um, so lots to look forward to.
um, we do have uh, a small uh, clip. I look always with wonder at this Arab prophet, whose name is Muhammad. Thousands of blessings and peace be upon him. How exalted his status was. One cannot perceive the ultimate limits of his station, and it is not within the scope of man to fully comprehend the depth and penetration of his ennobling qualities. Alas, due recognition has not been paid to his lofty rank. That unity which had disappeared from the world was restored by this same valiant champion. He loved God most intensely. So also his soul was being consumed in deep sympathy for mankind. That is why God, who was fully aware of the hidden excellences of his heart, exalted him above all the prophets and all the people of the past and the future and fulfilled his heart's desires in the span of his lifetime. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show of the Voice of Islam with Imam Tawheed and me, Imam Farid Ahmed, myself, Ali Ahmed. The time is uh, two minutes past eight. It's Friday, the 11th of November, 2022. We were discussing this issue about RE in schools, and um, I note that uh, the chair for Religious Education Council of England and Wales, uh, is, uh, Sarah Lane Crawford, is with us. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Breakfast Show, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. A pleasure. Uh, uh, government statistics show that around one-fifth of secondary schools in England offer no religious ag- education in year 11, and that some schools combine the subject with PSHE, or citizenship uh, studies, uh, thereby reducing uh, the time spent on these subjects. What What are your views on this? Well, we're not very happy with it. Um, clearly provision of religious education is an entitlement for all students in school um, so if year 11 pupils are missing out on it then that isn't in line with the law but it's also not fair on them because there's such a lot that they can gain from religious education um, in terms of combining the subject with other subjects that can be done really well as long as there are discrete areas where students know that they are studying religions and beliefs so it really does depend on the skill of the teacher but ideally we would like really high quality religious education in every school for every young person mm-hmm. why why do you think religious education is important well it's important for many reasons and um, one of the reasons is that if we understand other people's religions and beliefs if we know something about them that can lead to a more tolerant and respectful society. Um, And I think that's what we all want. Um, It also is really important for academic reasons. It's a very strong academic subject that brings all sorts of skills and attitudes um, into play so that young people's academic development is enriched. For personal development as well, it's helpful. It's Um, hugely helpful for young people to be able to articulate their own views Mm. and to have their own beliefs valued in a public forum so um, and there are many more reasons but those are some of the top ones I think you don't think uh, it leads to bigotry and intolerance not if it's taught well Mm -hmm. Um, and that is one of our problems is that there are not sufficient 
well-qualified teachers of religious education and the government recruitment targets are not being met. Uh, one way of resolving that would be for the government to offer a bursary to um, students who want to become teachers of religious education and we are having conversations on an ongoing basis about a national plan for RE which would ensure good quality RE for all students um, which would value a wide range of beliefs and religions um, and would actually help people to become much more critical in their evaluation and to be able to have a balanced view so actually it's educating away from bigotry and intolerance it's good re is precisely the opposite of that mm-hmm. um, i've got some uh, a couple of colleagues who would also like to ask some questions i, w- I hope that's okay that's absolutely fine yes yeah. okay. Um, thank you for joining us this morning. I wanted to ask you, how can we ensure uh, the quality of religious education are set high and that there is uninformity in religious education throughout the country? And why is this important? It's a really good question. Thank you for asking it. Um, it well, the RE Council, along with other organisations, we have over 60 organisations in membership. Um, are campaigning for a national plan for religious education, which I've just mentioned, which would help us to ensure we had adequate, um, well-trained teachers. But um, and having actually that is one of the biggest things is having the right teachers to ensure that the quality is good. Um, you may know, and some of your listeners may be aware, that across the country, every local authority has a standing advisory council for religious education and it has um, representatives from different faiths and beliefs represented in the area from the local authority and from teacher association and that SACRE as we call it is responsible for monitoring and supporting religious education in that local area so we can support SACRES and the National Association of SACRES is one of the members of the RE Council but we're also really working hard on this national plan that would have standards that the government we hope will adopt that will ensure that there are expectations about what good quality RE looks like and what is required of each school and each multi-academy trust so it is Hmm. I think uniformity is um, uniformity of standards so we want high standards but actually there's going to be diversity because really good RE should also reflect the local situation so we would expect there to be some regard paid to which religion and belief groups are present in each local area so that young people can be educated about the religions and beliefs of those people who live around them as well as a national and global picture. Absolutely and and do you think it is important for children to learn about differences at a young age rather than fear those that are different and can it have a positive impact on their mental health? Absolutely. I think um, young children are very much, well, they're very accepting and I think intolerance is often learned. So the younger we start to help young children to have a respectful curiosity about what other people think and what they believe, because what I would love to see is that children and young people actually can approach other people with questions about what they believe in a really curious way 
that helps to inform their own beliefs as well. So a fear is the last thing that we want. It's actually about really wanting to learn and, and being very respectful towards others. Um, and I think that does have a positive impact on mental health because although there are many reasons um, for poor mental health and many things that affect our mental health, um, and some of which we can have an impact on, others of which are much more complex, I think having a very positive view of yourself and your own faith and beliefs and having a support network in your community has been shown to be something that does have a positive impact on mental health. I think for all of us, if we feel respected and that we are important, that's actually a really good thing for our mental health. Thank you. And are there any new initiatives to help improve children's mental health being proposed by the government or organisations? I think mental health is one of the really big items on the government's agenda and the agenda of so many organisations, both both voluntary and statutory. Uh, We've seen that there have been many issues affecting mental health, particularly during the pandemic because of isolation, and that's been for children and for adults. But I think in recent years, we've seen many more children being affected by poor mental health. So I think there are numerous initiatives and schools have a leading role to play in that, but not the only role. And and actually, I think teachers and religious education teachers are often very good at this. Uh, Listen to young people and perhaps can pick up early signs of difficulties and help to find the correct support um, and ways of involving families in supporting that child as well. Thank you. Just uh, one last question from my colleague here. Oh, yeah. So what is your view on faith-based schools and selection criteria based on a faith for such schools? Well, I'll give you... Um, obviously, I have a personal view, but actually I'm speaking as chair of the Religious Education Council, which has organisations which have faith schools amongst, um, in their remit. So we really very much welcome the involvement of faith groups with their own schools in ensuring high quality religious education Um, and what we'd really like to see and I think most people would like to see that um, faith and belief are important in every school and have a place in every school Um, I think sadly that hasn't always been the case so I think faith based schools are often the place where families find the most support that they need for their children and young people. But I think from the RE Council's perspective, it's really important that all children and young people in faith-based schools, as well as in community schools, have access to high-quality religious education, which gives them insight into a wide range of religions and beliefs other than their own, so that they can live as fully rounded citizens in their communities in our wider society. Sarah, I mean, <coughs> sorry, uh, Sarah, um, isn't it the case um, that uh, faith-based schools will engender a more narrow uh, faith perspective than non-based, uh, non-faith-based schools? I think um, that's a widespread belief from many people. But I think, again, there's a real variety in the way that schools um, act in our communities. So there are fantastic examples of faith-based schools 
that give a really well-rounded education and have, um, for example, partnership arrangements with other schools, perhaps from different faiths, or community schools with a wide range of faith and belief backgrounds in. So I think it's a variety of provision, but there's, there are examples of excellent practice in faith-based schools and in community schools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do, does SACRI also have uh, uh, influence over how uh, religious education is imparted in, in faith-based schools as it has in other schools? Well, in voluntary-aided schools, um, they can follow their own religious education syllabus, but many of them now are adopting the local syllabus mm-hmm. for religious education. And there are many good partnerships. So actually, SACRI's also um, are really re- given the remat to, to look for after local authority schools. But in many cases, they've built very good relationships with faith schools and also with academies and uh, free schools in their areas. So really what we're looking for is joined up provision mm-hmm. so that every young person has high quality religious education, regardless of what kind of school they're in. Okay. No, that's very interesting. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for your contribution. It's been very useful. Thank you very much for having me. Have a lovely day. And you, thank you. So that was... Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. That was uh, Sarah Lane Crawford. Uh, and, uh, yes, she's the Chair of Religious Education Council for England and Wales. So um, moving on, um, Imam Tovi, you spoke to Robert Kahn, didn't you, uh, earlier? And uh, this is what, he, uh, what uh, that interview actually uh, yielded. So let's share what the thoughts of Robert Khan on this. So we have with us today at the Voice of Islam radio station, Robert Khan, and you are a education campaigns minister, Humanist UK. Thank you for joining us today at the Voice of Islam radio station. Hi, thanks for having me. So for the benefit of our listeners, could you please inform us of what Humanist UK stand for and a little bit about the movement please um, yeah sure so um, fundamentally uh, at Humanist UK we, we advocate for freedom of religion or belief for everybody uh, but our, our approach to this um, comes particularly from the perspective of the non-religious um, so I mean, half the population of the UK is non-religious um, it is actually even higher for those who are under 30 and so uh, we believe that it's important that society reflects um, uh, the demographics. Um, so, for example, we, you know, we believe that it's not appropriate to have um, an established church you know, where the king is tied to the Church of England. Um, and we also think it's wrong, for example, to have bishops sitting in the House of Lords. Um, and so when it comes to our approach to schools... Um, yeah, we, we believe in the freedom of religion or belief at schools and in that schools should teach about religion um, because I think it's really important, obviously, for children to know all about the different religions and beliefs in the world. But uh, we don't believe that state schools themselves should have um, a religious ethos. Fantastic. Thank you so much for, the, for that introduction. And in places like France, there is a total separation of church and state to the extent where some teachers who wish to wear religious symbols in school, they are banned from doing so. So I wanted to get your view on this. Do you think, should schools be uh, teaching religion? And if so, how can they do so in an inclusive manner? Um, I mean, fundamentally, we approach this 
question from a again from a freedom of religion or belief point of view. So, um, in, as far as we're concerned, it's you know it's absolutely fine for staff at schools to wear religious clothing and symbols, for example. Um, I think the, the key point is whether their wearing of such things would impact on the quality or the effectiveness of their teaching. Um, and th you know, therefore, some religious clothing, I mean, for example, a full face covering, it may make it difficult for young children, especially, to get the most out of their interactions with the teacher. So I mean, from our point of view, we, we think that's probably not appropriate in schools in the UK, as, as culturally in the UK, we're very much used to interacting via facial expressions. Um, but as I said, I mean, when it comes to other religious symbols and clothing, with you know, a humanist UK, we're very relaxed about that. You know, it, it's very much kind of you know, live and let live, really. And also, um, can some religious schools be dangerous if not monitored appropriately with issues such as indoctrination? And could you tell us about how you worked uh, with the whistleblowers to shut some schools down? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, this is this is a really important bit of work for us. Um, we're I mean, we're fortunate in the UK to have a piece of legislation called the Equality Act, uh, which upholds the freedom of religion or belief everywhere, um, in, and of course in schools. Um, and so, you know, the Equality Act says you mustn't be discriminated against because you are of a particular religion or or not of a particular religion or if you hold particular beliefs. Um, and so we think it's incredibly important that in schools the freedom for both teachers and students to hold or not hold any religious belief is, you know, that that should be upheld. Um, and, you know, furthermore, I mean, even private schools are required to actively promote what's known as uh, fundamental British values of democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty and mutual respect and tolerance of those with different faiths and beliefs. Um, I mean, it's worth saying that these are not necessarily uniquely British values, and they're called British values, but you may as well call them values of modern Britain or something, but yeah, the point still stands. Um, but the trouble is there are some private schools which operate under the radar, um, and many of these are highly religious in nature. Um, and Ofsted believes there are about 6,000 children who attend these schools in the UK. Um, and these kind of schools, they're just, um, it's, they're fundamentally all, you know, purely about study of religious texts for the you know for the entire day. Um and obviously this is this is an issue in terms of not you know, children not learning any maths or science or other secular subjects. Um and also the the the, the settings in which they invite that they operate are often dirty and unsafe. And you know, we've had reports from whistleblowers of physical and sexual abuse and so on in these schools. Um so in recent years we worked with the whistleblowers who are the former pupils of such to um to expose what goes on in them and convince the government to take action um and because the proprietors of these schools are able, able to get away with it because they operate under the radar and exploit loopholes in the law um, but happily i mean after many years of campaigning the government has announced new powers to close these loopholes um, and give the authorities the power to shut the schools down um, i mean it's worth saying the plans are in limbo at the moment because have a recent change in Prime Minister, so a lot of stuff is up in the air. But we are still very hopeful that these uh, this new legislation will go ahead to take action against these particular schools. Thank you. And lastly, before we do let you go, um, I want to ask you, some schools, uh, they also offer collective worship and faith-based assemblies. Um, I also wanted to get your views on this. Um, okay. Um, 
Sure. The, I mean, the law at the moment requires all state schools in England and Wales to, to have a daily act of collective worship, um, even, you know, faith schools, you know, even schools that aren't faith schools. Um, and by default, this act of worship is meant to be Christian in nature, but um, in faith schools, this can be amended to be in line with the particular faith ethos of the school. Um, but we're concerned that compulsory collective worship um, at schools violates the freedom of religion or belief of non-religious children or children from other faiths, you know, from the, than the faith of the school. Um, I mean, this is because, you know, even faith schools will have many pupils attending who are not of the faith background of the school. Um, so, I mean, parents do have a right to withdraw their children from these assemblies, but I mean that's not really ideal because it often leads to stigmatization of the pupils concerned, or they may miss out on part of the school day. If there are other things going on in the assembly, um, they may well miss out. Um, so, from our point of view, there should, you know, ultimately, religious worship shouldn't really be taking place in schools because um, we think worship is a, a private matter, separate from the state school system. But um, in the meantime, I mean, we believe that all faith schools should be required to provide an alternative non-religious assembly of equal educational worth you know, if any child or any parent uh, should request it. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Robert Khan. Um, it was very interesting uh, listening to you, to um, your education campaigns, Minister Humanist UK. Uh, thank you once again for joining us at the Worcester Strong Administration. No problem. Thanks for having me. Right, so that was uh, Robert Cairn, Education Campus Minister of Humanist UK, uh, interviewed by Imam Togidui. Yeah, there, there is a religious uh, or Islamic angle, should I say, to this uh, items in there. Yes, uh, of course. I mean, this is a very important topic that we are discussing, that uh, we see that from figures, what, what, what Imam Farid, what he's read out in the beginning of the show. Mm. It shows that uh, less and less children are now taking part in RE subjects, so um, there, there is a decline in people even uh, teaching uh, religious education in schools, and that is very concerning because in the media we see that Islamophobia is on the rise. People think that uh, Islam is an extreme religion or uh, you know, the teachings of Islam, Islam are nothing to do with peace. Um, so at one side where you see that people hold, some people hold such harsh views, uh, we see that we need to break down barriers. We need to let people know that, you know, this is not what Islam teach, teaches and Islam is actually a peaceful religion. Um, so more, more definitely more needs to be done about this. Um, and uh, children from a young age, they should be taught what uh, Islam is all about, what Christianity is all about, what all other religion is all about. So th this is something which will increase religious tolerance if, if we are familiarized with uh, what each other's beliefs are. Mm. Um, I mean, there's something which I've noticed myself that uh, whenever I've gone out um, and whenever I've we, you know, from, from our community, whenever we've uh, distributed flyers and leaflets, you'll often get people that question that why why are you distributing these leaflets? Um, you know, quite simply, the, the the whole purpose is that we are trying to get rid of that dogma or that uh, that view which is in the media that well, Islam is a very peaceful religion, um, and there's something which we need to address uh, that religion is very important in our lives. Uh, I was reading on this uh, particular issue. 
um, and His Holiness was commenting in in one of his speeches, and he gave the reference of a critic, Steve Wells, and uh, Steve Wells he he gives the idea that well, a lot most of the wars uh, or or the the question which arises is that most of the bloodshed in the world is through religion. And this critic, Steve Wells, he calculates that according to the Bible, there are 2,476,000 people were killed under divine wrath. But he says that Bible's figures is wrong. And according to his estimate, the actual number is far greater than this. And he calculates this as 25 million. So he says that uh, due to divine wrath, you know, um, 25 million have been affected or who have who have uh, who have died because of divine wrath and uh, this is the cause of religion so if we dwell into this in in this question uh, you know his holiness beautifully answers this question and he says that well in actuality uh, religion has taught its followers to adopt peace reconciliation and purity but even if we Let's say, for example, look at scientific devices or inventions. Let us look at chemical weapons, for example. If we only look at World War II, the death toll exceeds to 60 million deaths to 70 million. And the question now here arises, was that a religious war? Whereas Steve Wells, he estimates the figure of 25 million. And on one hand, if we just look at World War II, the death toll exceeds to <laughs> 60 to 70 million. So, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, you can't, you can't question religion that uh, this, this, is, this is the reason for that. So, in actuality, religion, it does not teach to kill. Uh, it only warns and admonishes people that they must adopt peace and security. And the Quran, the Holy Quran, it says that every prophet, they brought uh, the same message. And that was to end cruelty, injustice, oppression, and persecution. And this, the, all of these should be eliminated. And instead, uh, man, he should adopt uh, love, sympathy for one another. Um, so explaining what is religion uh, in, in the writings of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he very beautifully explains he says that what is religion? It is the path one adopts for oneself. In reality, everyone has a religion or creed. And in, an irreligious person does not believe in God, still has a path to choose to follow, which is in essence is their religion. However, one should stop to think whether the path they have chosen in life truly gives them everlasting happiness, peace and tranquility. And this should be posed to rejectors of religion. Religion is only a general word and it means the path one treads on. It is not a word that exclusively applies to faith and experts in arts, science, physics, medicine, astronomy and any field of knowledge also have canons, doctrines and beliefs. However, it is a certainty that these will not provide salvation to anyone. Just as a soul requires a body and words need meaning, so too does mankind stand in need of religion. The point here is not whether the being is called Allah, God or Parmeshir, 
Rather, the real question is how one perceives the being he calls out to. Our view is that whatever name one assigns to the higher being, the real question is how do they recognize and comprehend him? What attributes does that being possess? The actual matter one should reflect on is the nature of the attributes of the divine being. So very beautifully put by His Holiness, explaining that, well, you know, th this is the purpose of life and, you know, it gives you conduct um, in, in your life. Um, and first, this is what should be addressed, that uh, why why do we need religion? And, um, you know, I, I could, I could uh, carry on with this discussion, but just lastly from my end, um, I, w I would explain what promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he explain uh, in what he explains in a nutshell, um, how Islam has described the attributes of God and explains that uh, nothing ever has been suspended. He says at one place, the essence of religion is based on two overriding aspects, which are the rights due to God and the rights due to his creation. So very beautifully explains that uh, if we look at the essence of religion, these are the two main aspects w you will always find is uh, giving due rights towards God Almighty, remembering him and, uh, you know, inclining towards God. And the second is giving rights towards your creation and uh, helping, helping uh, one another. And these are the two main overriding aspects within within religion um and and will that um you know that that is it from my side imam free if you also want to add anything you can do so oh yeah it says in the holy quran that zarikal kitabu fihi, and furthermore it says hudallil muttaqin that's a guidance for the righteous now we need to learn what is the guidance so it says in the holy quran that be nice and be honest to even your enemies so a very important lesson that the world can learn from this teaching, particular teaching of the Holy Quran, and plus not just the world as a whole, but e every department in every, you can say, phase of society that uh, being honest, honest, lack of honesty is what drives people to go crazy. And these rights and all that, that we are not being paid and all that, this is ultimately goes down to not being honest. Okay? And everything is based on, should be based on this, it's according to the Holy Quran. I mean, if you're being nice to your and being honest to your enemies, you should be, it's understood that you should be nice to the people you're friends with, okay, people you work with. And furthermore, it says that, let's talk about parents, and it says in the Holy Quran that be nice to parents. In fact, Holy Quran teaches us a prayer where it says that children should pray for their parents so that, uh, oh God, have mercy on them as they nourished me when I was young. Furthermore, it puts responsibility on parents as well on the other side that parents do not forsake their children they are not allowed to leave them just because of financial reasons if there's some other reasons maybe but financial reasons Allah Ta'ala says that he will ultimately help you to r raise them to feed them so mm -hmm. don't leave them so in the Holy Quran I've just given you two examples on top of my head but it gives you a complete you can say uh, how to live a life so it gives mm -hmm. you a narrative of how to live a good life and religious religious education teaches you that and furthermore in the holy quran it says be truthful so it's not that something which is negative it's all positive that we need to do this we need to do this is what holy quran the basic book of islam teaches you mm -hmm. so religious education can make you a very good person mm -hmm. if we act upon it 
the way we should. Yeah. And I mean, even you, uh, Imam Fred, you work in uh, Al Al Nusrat, right? And yeah. you, one of, apart from reading, uh, teaching academic subjects, you also teach religious education yeah. as well to kids. And yeah, and, and the purpose, sole purpose of that is to for the religious upbringing, and for making them a better human being. I mean, nothing more than that. Mm. Yeah. Oh, very, very good. No, thanks very much. Uh, for that, I think um, we need to bring this uh, particular topic to an end. And uh, <coughs> Imam Fareed, you can stay on the microphone because uh, we are going to be approaching the next subject and uh, we're looking to you to introduce that. And it's about uh, living longer, five simple lifestyle changes for longevity. So tell us what they are. Oh, yeah. So, well, many people try to make healthy choices in a bit to extend their lifespan while there might be some more unusual claims out there to achieve longevity it could ultimately be as simple as decisions we make on daily basis such as what we eat okay now a medical writer at pharmaceutical company nice rx naveen kosla explained the importance of good health has been highlighted over recent years and there are a number of simple lifestyle changes that we can make that will not only improve our physical and mental health, but also increase, it, increase our chances of living a long and happy life. Monitoring the foods we, you eat and the calories attached to them is a great starting point, as well as incorporating more plant-based foods into your diet, such as fruits, vegetables and nuts. As well as providing the body with a range of vitamins, research has suggested that they can increase your lifespan, as well as eating a balanced diet. It's important to keep active and aiming for 15 minutes of exercise each day will re reduce your risk of heart disease, depression and diabetes, whilst helping you lose weight and prevent premature death. NiceRx's five lifestyle changes to live a longer life so firstly they suggest that eat healthy plant-based food so foods such as nuts fruit vegetables whole grains and other plant foods food are packed with nutrients and antioxidants which are essential for the body Studies have shown that a number of these foods can reduce the risk of cancer, heart disease and more, which will improve your quality of life. Secondly, monitoring your calories. As well as helping you to lose weight and feel healthier overall, studies have suggested that st staying within the recommendation, recommended calorie intake can help to, take, to increase your lifespan. Now, this, the third one is keeping keeping yourselves active so studies have suggested that 15 minutes of exercise each day could add an additional three years to your lifespan as well as the risk of premature death decreasing around four percent for every 15 minutes of exercise endured whether it's a workout in gym or a brisk walk there are many benefits associated with exercise this study referenced by NiceRx was published by Lancet Journal in 2011 and analyzed data from more than well, 
over 400,000 uh, 400, participants between 1996 and 2008. It concludes 15 minutes a day or 90 minutes a week for, for of moderate intensive intensity exercise might be beneficial even for individuals at risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, fourthly, they say that reduce your alcohol intake. So limiting the amount of alcohol you consume can have numerous benefits for your health and reduce your chances of developing a range of health issues. Research has suggested that reducing your alcohol intake can reduce the risk of premature death, meaning we can all enjoy our favorite tipple every now and then. And the fifth thing which they suggested is that create a strong sleep routine, which is very important as well. Good quality sleep is great for your health, but it's important to get the right amount. If possible, try to go to sleep and wake up around the same time every day and avoid sleeping in late during the weekends. One study published in gen in Journal of American Heart Association found that sleeping seven to eight hours a day was ideal. Mm. Well, it's important to mention that uh, Imam Farid was just uh, quoting what the uh, this particular website is saying. He's not recommending you to enjoy your favorite tipple every now and again. <laughs> are you? <laughs> right. Many mistakes. You just, you just, you just reading what uh, this study has revealed. Um, um, as uh, an Imam of the Amdi Muslim Committee, he would recommend you don't uh, partake of any alcohol at all. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, we are going to be uh, joined by an expert. Uh, is that uh, the case, uh, Imam Tukid? That, that we still have um, uh, uh, to look forward to speaking to um, uh, Ms. Sonia Morris? Yes, uh, we're just uh, waiting to speak with our next guest. Uh, we're just waiting for her on, but <coughs> this itself is a uh, very, very uh, important topic uh, in a healthy lifestyle, and it, especially in the in the era we're in. You know, the fast food is uh, something you know which a lot of people consume, um, and uh, we we should be very mindful with what we eat. Uh, I mean, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. At one place, he said that you know you should eat one third you should drink one third and uh, one third you should let you should leave um you know so r meaning that uh, you should not eat extensively but rather uh, when we eat as well the islamic junction is that eat uh, one third of, of that amount so that you're not full uh, but uh, we'll elaborate more on to the islamic analysis later i do believe we are joined by our guests so uh, yeah. Yes, sure. Um, that's Sonia Morris. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Sonia. Uh, you're a registered public health nutritionist. Yeah, that's right. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, healthy eating promotes the long-term aim of maintaining a well-balanced diet. In what ways can uh, one achieve this? Okay. Most diets as such do not really work. So I believe that finding um, what is considered to be a healthy diet and finding out all the information of what that entails there um, the NHS website is a really good place to start um, and they explain the best way of incorporating a healthy diet into your lifestyle and this will become sustainable and achievable 
in the best way to maintain a health is the best way to maintain a healthy diet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and uh, so, um, are you saying that that uh, that would be the best way of uh, uh, achieving um, uh, the long term aim of uh, maintaining a well balanced diet? Yeah having a resource to, or having access to that kind of information. That's right. And And just having the willpower to make the changes. It might not be all at once. You can do it in small chunks, Mm. a a little bit every day. um, Really improve your diet. Just make small changes. Mm. Uh, And how do you prevent relapses? Um, There will be relapses, but um, just get back on it the next day mm-hmm. say, you know that this thing has happened I've had this or I've done this um, I'll leave that behind I'm going to start again and do better next time right soldier yeah. on don't give yeah, up yeah soldier on never yeah. give up never mm-hmm. give up and what nutrients do we need how, how do they affect uh, our body and health okay we all need the nutrients the main nutrients are protein carbohydrates vitamin and minerals fiber fat and lots of water. The thing is, from an healthy diet, we will get all these um, nutrients in our diet because it's all a variety. It's contained in all different types of food. So if someone wants to know about a healthy diet, go to the Eat Well Guide. It's a really Mm -hmm. good guide by the NHS that shows you what the government says is the component of a healthy diet at each meal. It's a really helpful website. Mm. And uh, what's the position on meat as far as the Eat Well Guide is concerned? We should avoid meat, become vegetarian? No, I don't mm-hmm. think so. Um, you can be a vegetarian, you can you know, you can be a vegetarian, you can whatever you please, but you have to make sure all these components are in the diet in a healthy amount. Um, protein is the problem with vegetarians and vegans. Sometimes protein is lacking. Um, there's too many carbs and not enough protein, so we really have to watch the balance okay and uh, what about avoiding foods um, processed foods have got a bad uh, reputation uh, wh- why should they be avoided right for sure most processed foods are high in salt fats and sugars and those are the things that are detrimental to health mm-hmm are you still there? But yes, I'm still there. Okay, good. Uh, and uh, should we be eating more plant-based foods? Plant-based foods are great, but um, some of them are very highly processed. So they fall into that bracket of processed foods that are not good for health, um, which are high in salt, fats, and sugars. But um, eating more plants and fruits and vegetables, incorporating more of that into your diet is the best way to go. I mean, the government did put out a few years ago a five-a-day campaign. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yes. Five, yeah. yeah, five fruit and, fruit and vegetables. Yeah. But I believe the more you can eat of the fruit and vegetables, the better you'll be because they are low-fat, they are high in nutrients, vitamins and minerals, they're high in fiber, and right. also water. They do contain water, so and they're carbs. Okay. Some um, fruit and vegetables also contain proteins, so they're really good... Um, Good mm-hmm. way to go if you increase that and decrease some of the other things like the fats, the salts, and the sugars. Mm. Uh, Sonia, I've got two two co-presenters with me. I would also like <laughs> to ask questions. I hope that's okay. I, I wanted yeah, I wanted to ask you that um, you know if if it's difficult, uh, let's say a particular time in the day, to maybe cook food at home, 
um, and you're left with no choice but to maybe get fast food or food from outside. Uh, what, what would be your guidance on that for someone? What what should we do? Um, are you saying that you can't cook at home and you can only get takeaways? Yeah, yeah for example, yeah. If if uh, you know it's difficult for you to cook a meal at a particular time and you're only left okay. to order fast food, what's your guidance on that? Okay, um, you can make healthy choices with fast food. Most menus now they do have um, a breakdown. On, maybe on the website or um, on the if you're ordering online, they do have a breakdown of the components of their meals. They should do anyway. I think it was a government guideline. And um, just choose things that are low, as I said, low in salt, fats, and sugars. Um, calories, you have to watch the calories also, because high calorie diets will, um, you will increase your weight if you have lots of high calorie takeaways. But um, look out for the things that are probably considered healthy by the on the menu maybe there's a guideline okay great um and what effect does uh, food uh, that we eat have on our mental health yeah that's really important mental health is a big issue these days and food does have a, 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 a effect anything that's high in sugar does give you it gives you mood swings so if you have something you might have a high mood and suddenly crash it's called like a sugar rush. So high sugar foods, fizzy drinks um, do have an effect on our mental health. And also, we have to watch our gut. Our gut, um, our gut is really connected to our brain health, our gut health. So having constant um, fast foods, having constant um, unhealthy foods will have an effect in our gut, which will have an effect on our brain, our brain health. So there are some what you call the good mood foods. For example, something like turkey, very high in um, um, vitamin B. Vitamin B are um, thought to help the nervous system, anything high in vitamin B. So a healthy, balanced diet should keep you in, you know, should help to sustain a good mood and good mental health. Great, thank you so much, uh, Sonia. Just one last question from my side, and then I'll pass the mic on to my colleague. Um, how can one have a healthy attitude towards food? Okay, attitude comes from the mind, really. It's that willingness to change and just to take that first step. And as I said before, never giving up. If something doesn't work, try something else. Just have the mindset to say, I'm doing this for my health my life and my family and um, just keep going forward and never give up and find different ways that will suit your lifestyle that will fit into your lifestyle not everyone can have three meals a day at set times there are different times so find a way there's so much information out there now on lifestyle oh yeah so I just wanted to ask how can a nutritionist help with healthy eating Okay, most nutritionists, um, registered nutritionists, they can do like a, they can take an assessment of where you're at that will show like your lifestyle, your needs, and then they can do a healthy eating plan um, to fit into your lifestyle. That's how I that's what I do with my clients. I make sure I get to know the client, then I get to know their lifestyle, then I get to know what will suit them, something that's easy that will just fit into their lifestyle over a period of time and just making those changes. Oh yeah, and lastly, what do you think, why is it 
so difficult to stick to a healthy lifestyle in long term and what should one do to improve the odds? Okay, the, I think the worst thing of sticking to a, a healthy lifestyle is our busyness. We're just so busy these days. Um, we haven't got the time to kind of um, prepare meals and things. And also, while we're out, the ad- advertising, the, um, the lure of the food, the lure of fast food, it's all, it all plays into um, not, um, we're, we're not sticking to a healthy diet. Yeah. Um, what we can do to help is just make a plan. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, is this, so that's funny. That that's what you help people people draft uh, a plan yeah. and uh, ways to stick to it. And uh, if yeah. they do do fall off, uh, then uh, how to get back on to yeah. to a particular regime? Maybe modify that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Very, very useful. Um, so you registered public health initiationist, uh, and uh, thank yeah. you very much for coming on uh, and speaking to us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. A wonderful pleasure. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. So uh, that was um, Sonia Morris, uh, registered public health nutritionist. Um, and uh, well, uh, we've got uh, a few minutes left, Imam uh, here. Is there a, a religious uh, angle that we can also give? Yes, yes, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, from, from my side, one particular aspect I do want to highlight is that the the Holy Quran, uh, when it comes to eating, it says to adopt the middle path. And we read in the Quran, God Almighty says, that, and thus we have made you a moderate nation. So this means that Muslims, um, we are advised to avoid extremes of any kind and to adopt the middle path. And this can even be applied when it comes to consumption of food. And the Islamic teachings are based on the same principle. Uh, and when making food choices, uh, avoid all extremes, take the middle path and practice moderation in consuming all plant and non-plant-based foods. Uh, the Holy Quran has also at another place, it has said, God Almighty has said that eat and drink, but do not, do not be immoderate. Uh, so this means that access of any one type of food is prohibited and Muslims are commanded to balance their food intake of animal and plant resources and depending upon their physical needs, uh, environmental obligation and personal choice, God does not prohibit us from making use of any valuable resources. At another place, uh, God Almighty in the Holy Quran, He says that, O ye messenger, eat of the things that are pure and do not and do good works and this is a deep and profound connection between pure and wholesome food um, and I, I think Imam Farid will elaborate more on this on what is tayyab and what is not tayyab um, so uh, this and uh, th- there is a deep uh, as I mentioned a profound uh, connection between pure and wholesome food and moral standing of a person an old English adage uh, says that you are what you eat. And the Islamic uh, standpoint is that the use of pure and wholesome food leads to enhanced physical and mental health, which is regarded to perform good and righteous deeds and in turn leads to spiritual progress. And the basic Islamic principle is that the moral being uh, takes precedence over the physical being. And meaning that the objective of physical development is 
to progress in morality. So for a believer, an everyday act of life, as simple as eating food, serves as a reminder to reflect on the purpose of life, the existence of God, and to make spiritual progress. And the core of the Islamic concept of food consumption is that food exerts a powerful influence on man's morals, and hence food should be sourced from permissible sources and should be wholesome in its origin, preparation and consumption. So very beautifully uh, put in, in this that uh, you know we, we should be adopting the middle path. Uh, we should not exceed in anything. And when it comes to eating as well, um, we should not uh, we should try to eat what is pure, what is wholesome. Uh, you know something can be halal but uh, w- the you know the injunction is that we should eat what is they what what is good for us um and imam Fried, if you want to also add on this uh, yeah so more on to define the tayyib i would say that tayyib is something which is more fit for you to eat on a particular time so situations can change times can change let's say if someone wants to gain weight then tayyib for him would be to eat something which is you can say more greasy more oily for just to gain the weight for someone who is trying to cut down on weight it will be the exact opposite and someone wants to maintain what their body weight is then he would have to eat something which is very balanced so tayyib simply means that what is best for you out of what is permissible well let's say a thousand things tayyib would be 10-15 which are the best for you so even if you are ill and something which is normally good for you, but if doctor says don't eat it, then you shouldn't be eating it, even, even if it's permissible. But according to the Holy Quran, it guides us that if it's not the year for you, then avoid it best at best. And then furthermore, uh, as far as keeping active is concerned, it says in the Hadith that the Holy Prophet, وسلم, uh, the Holy Pro- uh, Prophet peace be upon him, said that a strong believer and a healthy believer is far better than a weak believer and is more beloved in sight of Allah than a weak believer. So it also shows you the fact that not just the Holy Quran, but Holy Prophet as well uh, made us act upon the fact that we need to exercise. And plus, he gave us his own, you can say, example by he <coughs> once took part in a bit of a wrestling competition with another believer and then he was used to you could say practice for you can say running and all that so horse riding and everything so he if you look at his life he ha- was full of you can say physical exertion physical exercise and this is how in we can you could say lead a healthy life and furthermore the final topic which we discussed was creating a good sleeping routine so even in that the holy quran says that night is made for you to sleep to rest so do make a good use of that time and do sleep so it says in the Holy Quran that day is for working and night is for sleeping. So we need to act upon that teaching of the Holy Quran as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just amazing how the, uh, the Holy Quran, it looks at every aspect of your life, um, be it your spiritual life, uh, you know, looking that connection between man and his creator, but also... Uh, towards man's mental health and also then again looking at his physical health and even looking at the smallest details of what he should eat. So the, the, the Holy Quran in a nutshell has, even when it comes to eating, it has beautifully explained uh, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat and uh, you know what sort of lifestyle is 
the ideal lifestyle and what is best for you. So, you know, yeah. with that, uh, I, th- I think uh, me and uh, <coughs> Imam Frida, we're, we're done with our analysis. Okay. Well, very, very <laughs> useful analysis. Uh, it's a lesson to me, especially what uh, um, Imam Frida said about Tayyib. It means that those people who are in danger of becoming diabetic should stay off burfi. <laughs> Even though burfi is uh, something that is halal, but not for those who are uh, in danger of, uh, of of becoming diabetic or uh, what uh, patients uh, heart disease. So yes, it's an interesting uh, interesting concept. Uh, but uh, I think what Imam Toki you said is that. Um, is very telling is that um, the Holy Quran is very very comprehensive in the teachings it uh, it gives mm. uh, not only a wide range of subjects but even those subjects are covered uh, when you look at um, the Holy Quran more deeply those subjects are covered in great depth as well um, so it's a right it's a good note to end on uh, as far as the uh, main uh, part of the broadcast is concerned. It leaves us now to thank those people who have been involved in the uh, production. Our producer, Nergis Nasser, is worthy of our gratitude, as are researchers Hannah Ahmed, Neha Latif, and Salia Bakhtiar. Uh, so thank you to, uh, to them all. Uh, Akib uh, Ahmed Anan, who uh, is, has been our elect- uh, his technician during the course of this broadcast is also uh, very much uh, deserving of uh, our uh, thanks. So uh, thank you to him. And then we must not forget uh, those people who have uh, sacrificed their time in order to lend their expertise to further our understanding of the subjects we were covering. Uh, in the first uh, main story that we considered, which was about uh, religious education, uh, we had uh, we shared the views of Dr. David uh, Lewin, a senior lecturer in philosophy of education at Strathclyde. Uh, Sarah Lane Crawford also joined us. Uh, she's the uh, chair for Religious Education Council of England and Wales. And uh, finally, for that particular topic, we had. Uh, also the opportunity to share the thoughts of Robert Can, the uh, the Education Campaigns Minister. He was from the Humanists. Uh, and when we came to the second topic, uh, the How to Live uh, Longer, uh, the Five Simple Lifestyle Changes for Longevity, uh, we had the wisdom of uh, Sonia Morris, uh, to benefit us and our listeners. So thank you to all of them. Uh, we'll be uh, broadcasting again Monday to Friday, 7 to 9, the breakfast show. Until then, it's alaikum from us all. <laughs>